Uh, let me look around. Okay, cool. Now I, know, now I know how to talk about this stuff, but let's go ahead and grab a Bible. Um, Proverbs chapter 5. I'll read the text. We'll also put it up on the screen, and uh, then we'll pray and get to work. This is Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 1, reads like this. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion, and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as gal, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors, and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the street, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breath satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For lack of discipline they die. Let us stray by their own great folly. Let's pray. Lord, as we've opened up your word together, we're praying that you, by your spirit, through your word, would speak to us. And we pray, God, that you would help us along in these things, that we would know what wisdom looks like, especially in regard to our sexuality. So, Lord, I pray that you would make us a wise people for your glory. Amen. Amen. You might ask straight away, Core, do we really need to do this? Is, is talking about adultery a good use of our time together? And to that, I would answer with an obvious yes. In fact, this week, I, I began to just kind of tally it up, and I, don't, I, I didn't do a deep dive on this, so I just kind of thought about it briefly, and I came to the conclusion that personally, I have probably been uh, closely connected with 12 different cases of adultery, like where I'm pastorally involved in some way, or I'm a friend of these individuals, and so there are 12 different couples, not just individuals, 12 different instances of adultery. Two of them uh, were staff members at churches. Three or more of them were in leadership positions within churches. One of them is a, a parachurch ministry director. Um, and then there's a, there's a bunch more. And in fact, as I started thinking through it this week, I began to realize there are probably three different instances currently that I'm aware of that are connected to our church in some fashion. 
So if you were to ask me, Cord, does it really matter that we talk about sexuality and adultery and marriage and these sorts of things? I would say absolutely. And to say otherwise, I think, would be foolish. So what we find here is the foolishness of adultery, the wisdom of marriage, and the blessing of married sex. And that's what we're going to find here. But let's start off with the foolishness of infidelity in verses 1 to 14. It says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. You want to be considered a wise individual whose lips can articulate what, what wisdom is? Then pay attention to this lesson. And actually, I, I would suggest, I'll come back to this later on, I would suggest that this is probably a teaching for a young person who isn't even married yet. But what we find here are different aspects of the adulterous event, and they're kind of explained for us along the way. I'm going to share them, hopefully in a way that's memorable. Adultery has to do with communication, destination, devastation, and self-condemnation. So let's do those one at a time. Communication, destination, devastation, and self-condemnation. First off, adultery has to do with communication. Look at verse 3. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Meaning when she talks, it is enticing. And by the way, it's using ancient Near East categories. It's saying an adulterous woman. It's using some of those conventions of their day. The truth is we know it could be an adulterous man. So we're just realizing how they communicated back then and the conventions that they use. But here's what it's saying. The communication of an adulterous individual is enticing. It is like honey. It is smooth. It's beautiful. And so, this, so I began to think through uh, some of the ways that we, that we communicate today, especially within marriage, and I, I began to realize we don't always communicate in a way that's enticing or beautiful. I'm going to show you a few examples here in a minute, but Carol Newsom is a scholar who wrote, uh, I think it was a dissertation, it's called Women and the Discourse of Patriarchal Wisdom. She made this point, I was surprised by it this week. She said, there is a connection between speech and sex. And that was the whole part of her dissertation. There is a, speech and sex are very closely connected. Um, the adulterer is speaking enticing words, words that drip like honey, words that are smooth. How we often communicate within marriage is opposite from that. And Proverbs actually tells us about that. So I just went looking for it briefly, and I found multiple examples in the book of Proverbs of how we communicate in marriage. It, tell, it says it like this, and some of these are almost comical. If they weren't in the Bible, we might chuckle at them. We might still chuckle at them. But it says in Proverbs 21, verse 9, that to have a quarrelsome spouse, yeah, that's one of the ways we talk. We quarrel. To have a quarrelsome spouse, it says, it would be better to live on the corner of your house. Like, up, you'd move out and up onto the top deck. That's what it's like to live with somebody who ordinarily communicates in a way that is hostile and quarrelsome. In the same chapter, it says, it would be better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome or nagging spouse. Okay, so we're hearing there's a difference here. The adulterous woman speaks with honey and smoothness. We often communicate in a way that's abrasive. In Proverbs 27, it goes on to say, 
that if you live with a quarrelsome spouse, it's like having a, a leaky home that leaks when it rains or it's like restraining the wind or trying to grab oil with your hands. In other words, it's incredibly frustrating and impossible, right? That's how people normally, a lot of people would normally communicate in their marriages. And so when we think about the connection between speech and sexuality, and we begin to realize that difference, that tremendous difference, we can, we can unearth, there's a problem there. That if the adulterous individual is so enticing, and then the marriage communication event is so abrasive, it doesn't surprise us that we find people moving in that direction of adultery. So, the outcome, though, verse 4, in the end, she is as bitter as gal, sharp as a double-edged sword. The communication is enticing at first, but it results in damage. It results in great harm. Now, in all of the cases that I've mentioned my familiarity with, my involvement with, there is a trend here. It's anecdotal, but it is there. In every single adulterous case that I am familiar with, there was a speech problem meaning there were communication events happening outside of the marriage that were very enticing to the individual. They were finding themselves drawn in communication to somebody other than the spouse because that person gets them. That person listens to them. That person is going to relay information that they like, and so they're drawn in that way. And so when we find here in Proverbs that there's a connection, we should pay attention. And truthfully, we should be aware, shouldn't we? That if we're finding ourselves drawn to conversations with people who we're not married to and we're finding that much more attractive, that's dangerous, in my opinion. That is incredibly dangerous. Secondly, adultery and destination, the question we should ask is, where is this leading? It says, her feet, verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. In other words, wisdom is able to say, hey, this path leads to death. And we need to be willing to ask that question. If we start moving in this direction, where is it heading? And the wisdom would say it's heading to harm. The surprising thing is the adulteress doesn't even know that. Look at verse 6. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. So the adulteress says, I don't know where this is going, but it's really fun. Wisdom says, I see where this is heading, and it is death. That's a, that's a big difference. But we need to be willing to ask that question. Where is this going? And, and honestly, in some of those cases that I've mentioned, it's surprising how people will justify their behavior. They imagine this will lead to their happiness. This will get them where they're seeking to go. Going in this direction will actually result in their permanent happiness. And wisdom says, wait, 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 pump the brakes here. Look at this with eyes wide open. The Bible seems to say the exact opposite. You will not be happy. You will not be satisfied. In fact, the Bible says this way leads to death. That's why the father amplifies this teaching right here. And he says, now, now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Here's, here's his counsel for the child. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. You need to stay as far back from this thing as you can. 
don't play the Christian liberty card that you're so strong and you can handle this thing. The thing that you need to do, my son, is remove yourself from that temptation. Keep far from that path because that path has a destination and the destination is death and devastation. That's the next thing. Thirdly, adultery and devastation. If you go this way, it results in catastrophe. You will lose a lot. You will lose personally. Look at verse 9. Stay away from this path, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. You will learn, if you go down this path, that you lose social credibility immediately. And what I've seen over and over again is when somebody moves in this direction, all of the friendships that they had previously and all of the relational capital that they've built up over a lifetime come shattering down. The dignity and the honor are gone. And what's fascinating, when you find somebody who's in the throes of this and they're trying to justify their behaviors, the, the thing that, that will often happen is they'll, they'll say, whatever. If they, don't if they don't respect me for my choices, then I'm going to find new people. And it ends up in a situation where people change vocations, they change cities, they change their relational network because they have lost all of the social, ca social capital that they've had to that point, and now they're going to go and rebuild. Here's the question we need to ask. Is it worth it? Are you really willing to part ways with all of these relationships that you have forged over a lifetime because you think you could be happier and you're just going to reset? Often it ends up being very, very hard. And the relationships that are maintained are strained. The respect and the dignity are gone. And now those relationships feel very awkward and very difficult. So if you're going to go this way, know you will lose honor to others and your dignity will be gone. You can also suffer financially. Look at verse 10. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. To commit adultery is expensive. It results in things like alimony and child support and legal fees. It results in financial ruin. Now, this is true in the ancient Near East where in the Bible you can read there are laws against this. And so to commit adultery, there, there are retributions that have to be made, payments that have to be made if you commit a sin of this degree. But that isn't only true in the ancient Near East. It's still a feature today. I was surprised to learn this. Uh, there's, there's a law, and it's uh, state by state, so it's called different things in different places. But there's a law called the Alienation of Affection. And in 2017, uh, in, in uh, North Carolina, somebody was awarded, one individual was awarded $8.8 .8 million in damages because of the infidelity that happened within that marriage. So we need, to, we need to recognize what the Bible is saying and what even just kind of common wisdom would say is, how on earth can you justify this? I mean, this will cost you. This will cost you tremendously. You will have personal loss. You will have economic loss. And, and you might be imagining that this is going to be wonderful and you're just going to ride off into the sunset with your lover. The truth is there will be consequences and you will suffer for a lifetime from them. In fact, that's where it leads. The fourth thing I want to show you here is the self-condemnation. If you go this way, it will result 
and self-condemnation. It, it will lead you to a place where at the end of your life, you will, you will regret your choices. Look at verse 11. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. You will get to the end of life and you will look back on the history of your choices and you will be in agony. You, you will regret the choices that you made and the what if. What if I would have done it differently? What if I would have listened to instruction? And in fact, that's what verses 12 and 13 say. The adulterer does not want to be corrected. Look at it. It says, you will say how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. In all the cases that I've mentioned, I have been disinvited from those relationships. And the reason why is people hate being corrected. And if you're going to persist in sin and somebody's going to call you on it, they're going to mute that voice. And that's been my, my personal experience. People will no longer listen. And that's what will happen to somebody who goes down this path. They'll come to a place where they say, good grief, I made a mess of things. And here's the truth about it. I hated correction. I wouldn't listen. I despised my teachers and the wisdom of their instruction, and I did this to myself. That's what verse 14 says. I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. There's a moment where somebody realizes, and this is more of like a, like a, like a legal scenario where they're uh, in a judicial system realizing the serious trouble that they've caused before God, before my peers. I made this mess. I'm in trouble. That's what happens to those who go this way. No matter what your self-justification might be, the result is calamity. So what do we do about that? What the Bible teaches us here and all over the place is that God has given us a wonderful gift. And it is the gift of marriage and sexuality within the marriage union. In verses 15 to 19, that's where the wise teacher takes us. Says, look, there's a temptation in all of us. We're sexual individuals. This does not surprise God that we have sexual interests, that we have desires. He made them. But what we need to understand is he made them for a specific place and purpose. He made sexual intimacy to be enjoyed in the union of marriage. And that's what is explained here in verses 15 to 19. God gave you this gift and you are to enjoy it within the marriage union. So look at verse 15. It says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. And I know that it's, again, bizarre language, but what it's saying is God has given you a personal source of fulfillment. Verse 18 makes it plain. It's your wife or your spouse. But God has given you this gift, and it's yours, and you're to go there and there alone to experience sexual fulfillment. And then... What it says in verses 16 and 17, it says, never introduce anything into this union. Never bring anyone else in. Never bring any additional sexuality into this thing. This is your private and personal well of sexual enjoyment, your marriage. Verses 16 and 17, your, your, your springs, should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. You have this beautiful and wonderful gift that God has given to you to experience sexual intimacy within the bounds of marriage. And then it tells us this is a blessing. Verse 18, may your fountain be blessed. 
and may you rejoice in the wife of your, your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may, your, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. The Father is saying, may you experience the bliss of married sex. May the blessing of God be on your marriage and on your sexuality in your marriage. It says a graceful deer. I know that's weird. They, they lived in a culture that had a lot more discretion uh, than, than ours does. They didn't have screens or print pieces or anything, so they would often draw from nature to make some of these different connections. But the, the idea here in verses 18 and 19 is that married sex is a blessing, and the father is praying for his son's sex life, which is weird, right? Like if you came up to me and we weren't having this conversation and you said, hey, I'm praying for my kid's sex life, I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but this is saying the father is praying for the son. May your sex life be blessed. May you enjoy your wife. May you be satisfied. May you be intoxicated with her love. So God is saying here that marriage is the place where individuals are to experience sexual fulfillment. And it is, it is wisdom to go in that direction and it is blessing to experience that joy. Now I need to talk to some different people in here for different reasons. One, um, one group of people would be those who are not married yet. Because some of you are, are young and unmarried and you might be thinking, what does this have to do with me? And what I would say is what I, what I mentioned at the beginning, Proverbs 1 to 9 appears to be uh, instructional material for youth. And so I would even say this proverb is probably aiming at somebody who isn't even married yet. So this is just good information to have, that you have a sex drive, that there is incredible danger out there in terms of adultery, that there is this blessing of marriage and sexuality being enjoyed in that marriage. You need to know these things, and you need to design your life accordingly. Ray Orland puts it like this. He says, sex is like a fire, and fires need boundaries. If you have a fire in the fireplace, that's good. It warms the house, creates an ambience, it's, it's good. But a fire outside of the fireplace burns the house down. So sex is this incredibly beautiful, powerful thing, but you need to know where it is appropriate to be experienced. If you're unmarried, that means you are looking in that direction of that is the only place where God has permitted sexuality to be fulfilled and experience. All right, the second group of people, and I, and I want to be incredibly clear here, second group of people that I need to talk to, and I think that this would be a very large percentage, and I, I'm saying this publicly so that you feel that solidarity. There are a lot of marriages where the sex life is unfulfilling, and depending on how you're looking at it, one person could be saying, I am not sexually interested in my spouse. The, uh, on the other side, you might end up with somebody who says, I would be incredibly sexually interested in my spouse. I just don't have that opportunity. Now, I want to I say this very plainly. I do not want anyone to weaponize this teaching to go home and say, well, the preacher said we better be having some sex, right? Like that, that would be foolish, and that would be a misunderstanding of how wisdom works. So what do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that there are many of us in here who do not have an active sex life with our spouses for reasons of health concerns or limitations? 
physical limitations or a lack of intimacy or any number of different things, what do you do with this? Because if you have your own private cistern, but you're not interested in that at all, what do you do about that? Let me give you two words of advice that I hope are very, very practical. And I hope that you would take these things and put them to work even today. The first thing that I think you should do is pray. And I take that from verses 18 and 19. You should pray because there's a precedent here in Scripture that we should be praying over our sex lives. That's radical, right? But that's what it says. May your fountain be blessed. And what you might need to do today is put that on the prayer agenda and you're going to begin praying, God, give me what you desire for my sex life. And in some cases, that means increase my sexual interest. In some cases, it might mean reduce my sexual interest to match that of my spouse. But give me the healthy vision of sexuality that you want me to have, God. I'm going to pray about that, and I'm going to pray as an individual. I would also say, as a couple, I think it would be incredibly wise to pray together. That you would grab hands, and you would look at each other, and you would have a conversation, and then you'd go before the throne of God's grace, and you would pray over your sex life. I think that that could be incredibly helpful. Pray is my first word of counsel here. The second thing that I want to tell you that I think is very, very important is you need to communicate. And I take that from verse 3. Remember how Newsom pointed out that sex and communication are integrally wed together. They are, they, there's a correlation here. Sex does not begin when you take your clothes off. It begins when you open your mouth. And if you're going to have a healthy sex life, you have to learn how to communicate in a way that is attractive and pleasing. If the, if the adulteress has dripping honey coming from her lips and smooth speech, and the married couple is experiencing quarrel and nagging, that's a problem. There's a, there's a um, marriage counselor who does research. Uh, Gottman is his last name, and he has this thing up in the Pacific Northwest where couples come to him and he observes them. One of the things about his organization is uh, it's on his marketing stuff he claims that by observing a couple he can he can predict with a high degree of accuracy whether or not the couple is going to make it and it, 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 it is alarming to see how that all plays out but the things that he would observe would be how they communicate with each other how do they greet each other when they when they see each other what is the communication pattern like uh, is it full of, he, he labels some stuff like criticism or complaining or contempt or stonewalling. Is the communication event something that feels hostile and distant and cold? Or does it feel warm and intimate? And I think you could take those categories of, of whether or not a, a couple is going to make it based off of observing their, the way they communicate with each other. I think you could take that and draw a straight line to the sex life as well. And you'd be able to predict, I think, with incredible accuracy, whether or not a couple is intimate. So here's, here's my suggestion. Think through how you talk to each other. If all you do is complain and argue, if all you do is speak with contempt over the other person, you critique them, criticize them, you speak disparagingly about them, if that's all that comes out of your mouth, what I would say is you're probably not going to have a healthy sex life. 
And the thing that you could do that would change all of that today is learn to talk differently. And I'm not saying whitewash all your problems or pretend everything's just peachy, but learn how to communicate in a way that is healthy. Learn how to communicate in a way that builds intimacy, that builds closeness. How you talk, your tone, your body language, all of that, it all matters. And if you will do those two things of praying together over your sex life and communicating together in a way that's healthy, I do think that will move you along pretty far. Well, finally, let's look at verses 20 to 23 because at the end of the chapter, we get this idea rehearsed in verse 20. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? Why would you do that? It's, it's a rhetorical question to say, God has given you the blessing of marriage and the gift of sex. Put those things together and hold those as sacred. Um, it says, for your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. Your sex life is wide open to God. And he, he is fully aware. He sees every, everything that you do. There's no way to kind of skirt the issue and get around God without his knowledge or his understanding. Everything you do is in full view of the Lord. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. One of the commentators puts it like this. What you find is that a person is initially captivated by the adulteress and then finds themselves to be a captor too. What you find is this interest being pursued that results finally in the catastrophe. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. So what should we do? Listen to the words of wisdom, honor and cherish marriage, and recognize that sexuality is meant to be enjoyed in the marriage. In fact, let me just show you from the New Testament. This is how Hebrews 13 puts it. It says, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. It's saying God has designed sex for this. So honor it and keep it. That's what we all need to do. One final step before we wrap up our time together. I fully admit that by talking about sex, a lot of times what we find is a baggage of shame. That we, When we start talking about sex and what God wants for us, and we start to think about the sexual stupidity that many of us have engaged in, we, we find ourselves embarrassed. And what I want to do is I want to uh, draw your attention once more to verse 21. In verse 21, it says, Your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. And you might be tempted to think, Oh, crud. Right? Like, he knows everything. There's, I can't hide anything from him. He sees it all. He knows it all. I want to show you from the Bible how God takes that information and uses it. Because I don't want you to walk out of here with your head hanging low, thinking, man, I'm such a mess. I want you to see how God thinks about you. If you remember in John chapter 4, there was an instance where the Lord Jesus Christ was dealing with a Samaritan woman. And they're standing beside the well and they're having a private conversation. And he's talking about some pretty radical things. He's talking kind of on the spiritual plane of like, Here's what's going on in the heavenlies. And, and she's like, I don't get what you're talking about, dude. But he tells her, and I'm going to turn there just so I can glance at it while I tell you this story. 
He's talking about this well that they're sitting beside and how if she were to drink from it, she would be eternally satisfied. And she's confused by it. And then they have a conversation about worship and she's confused by it. But he tells her in verse 16 of John chapter 4, he says, go and call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And he goes, I know. You have had five husbands. And the man that you're presently with is not your husband. And all of a sudden, she has this awareness. He knows everything I've ever done. He is fully aware of who I am. He has seen all of my mistakes. And they are laid bare before him. And she's confused by this. And she just comes to a place where she's throwing up her hands like, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe when the Messiah comes, he'll sort it all out. And I'll understand this a little bit better. And he says, you're talking to me. She goes away from that experience realizing that he has seen everything that she's ever done. And his advice was, hey, go get that husband. We'll get you married today. You can go enjoy your sex life from here on out. We'll get it all sorted out today. No, he sends her away and her experience is, this is incredible. And she starts inviting friends. She says, come and meet the man who knows everything I've ever done. There's not a whiff of embarrassment there. There's not a whiff of shame there is an excitement because she knows she is dealing with the Redeemer, the one who is fully aware of all of her missteps along the way, all of the poor choices that she's ever made, all of the failed marriages that she's been through and her present situation that she's dealing with, and he still loves her and has dealt with her kindly. And this morning, as we talk about human sexuality and the importance of marriage and the sacredness of sexuality being fulfilled in marriage alone, and we might think about the mistakes that we've made along the way, what we need to come to the conclusion of is God knows everything about me. He's seen every poor choice I've ever made, and he loves me. And he has redeemed me through Jesus Christ. And so I don't need to feel shame and embarrassment. I can move toward God with confidence because he loved me enough to send his son to die for me. And that, my friends, is good news. Marriage is a blessing from God, and sex is to be enjoyed within marriage. It is wisdom to know that and understand that. It is also wisdom to know that God loved us enough to redeem our broken sexuality. Let's pray. Lord, we ask in these moments that you, by your Spirit, would be working in our hearts. And we are praying, God, that you would make us a wise people, of people who think differently about marriage and sex because we are aware of its true intent and design. And Lord, would we be a people who honor the marriage bed and keep it pure for your glory. Lord, we're grateful for your redeeming work, your love for us, us broken people, and the way that you are able to look at us with everything that we've ever done in full view. And you're able to say, I love. Help us to help us to believe that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.